Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Sorting out one's personal priorities is the most difficult aspect of committing to anything of value. Well, let's qualify that statement. Committing to your priorities is easy when you measure value using money or self-interest. Everyone happily, readily, half-consciously, and with much pomp, fanfare, and self-justification explains how busy they are pursuing money, a career, and their jam-packed calendar at the expense of the community and the common good. In a country where a majority of Americans, roughly 55%, spend up to four hours a day watching their favorite programs, and another 22% of the country spends more than four hours doing the same thing, it's no wonder everyone feels overwhelmed. So for this podcast, when I speak of commitment to anything of value, I refer to the gospel as the only thing of value. Any listener, for example, a soldier who has fully committed themselves to their cause does not require further explanation. Herod falls into the first camp. With much pomp and fanfare, he is fully committed to what works best for Herod. He knows what his occupiers want. He knows what his family wants. He knows what the temple wants. More important than all of this, he knows exactly what is written in the law of Moses, which means he knows that he is accountable to the words of John the Baptist. But for all the wicked things which Herod had done, he added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 475 of the Bible as Literature podcast. In contemporary culture, we love to emphasize the importance of relationships. And I would be the first to stress how most of our pain and suffering culturally comes from the deficit of community and the absence of communal relationships. But what's interesting about communal relationships is that they are governed by protocol, by ritual, by a kind of group-oriented structure that prevents us 
from acting solely in our own interest. But the kind of relationships that we emphasize today in American society when we use expressions like family first or when we understand our relationships with others from the perspective of existentialism, which has really manifest itself in social media, postmodernism, individualism, all of the underlying philosophies that have emerged as me-ism in the modern world. Personal relationships, whether with friends or family, all of the relationships that have come to concretize American institutions reflect the attitude of <laughs> the character that we will encounter in the New Testament again here in Luke. We've encountered her also in the Gospel of Matthew, this character Herodias, who understands relationships in very much the same way a salesperson understands professional relationships as a means to an end, a selfish means to a selfish end relationships become a way to acquire something for personal gain. That is a recurring theme in the New Testament. And that is why systematically the cause of the gospel puts the teaching of the gospel ahead of personal relationships. It's the same demand that any cause makes. But it's very striking in the New Testament. We've heard Jesus say already more than once within the narrative arc of the New Testament that he has no family, that his mother and his brother and his sisters are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We'll hear that in Luke. We've heard it in Matthew. It comes up again and again. It's not just in the words of Jesus, but in the system of the New Testament. It's not that we are not to love one another and care for one another. But as Paul says, we must not please ourselves. We must seek to please and to care for others. Now, please don't enter into a discussion of psychology and self-care. That's not what Paul is talking about. He is talking about acting in such a way that we care for each other as opposed to acting selfishly and therefore self-destructively. We will inevitably find ourselves in the position of Herodias, the corrupter, or Herod, the corrupted, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, who didn't want to harm John the Baptist, but had no choice because he was susceptible to the demands of personal interests in Matthew, be it the influence of the crowd, under the pressure of his sister-in-law, or here in the Gospel of Luke, the pressure of his sister-in-law because of family ties, personal relationships that we take personal gain from, through which we are susceptible to corruption because we have something personal to gain versus what's correct. So in all relationships, putting 
the priority and the primacy of the gospel ahead of all of it and being willing to lose everything and everyone because of it. This is the problem of not making Scripture the referent. When Scripture is a referent, then it orders one's actions. In Matthew and Mark, where this conflict between John and Herod and Herodias are spelled out, here we have a very compact version. Also note that in Mark and Matthew, we have reference to this disagreement much later in the Gospel. It's not right after they introduce John. This conflict between John and the ruler, the Tetrarch, Herod, and the primacy of God's teaching are right here at the beginning in chapter 3, not halfway through the book. So making Scripture the reference point is significant here. Now, hopefully that's not a surprise to anybody, because we heard Mary keep talking about the law of Moses, the law of God, the law of the Lord. We've had this phrase repeated over and over again, so it shouldn't surprise us that the first thing that John does after he argues with the folks who are meeting him in the wilderness is he gets into a tangle with the Tetrarch. Now, one of the things about the Tetrarch and talking about what you're saying, Father, and one's loyalties, Herod was in a very difficult situation that the Romans put him in, because he is Idumean, which means he's from Edom, which is of the family of Esau. And we know that there's a competing history with Esau, he's with the children of Israel. They were always enemies. What happened is under the Romans, the Edomites, the Idumeans, were brought in to the Jewish fold and were considered Jewish through conversion. Then the Romans took one of the leaders over the Jews from the Idumeans. This is classic Roman divide and conquer. Here we have the person, Herod, who is dependent on both his tenuous connection with the Jews and his tenuous connection with the Romans. And so therefore he's always having to play this balancing act. But this is played out here in that he is having to balance between being a Jew and therefore being under Scripture and the family ties of his brother's wife. This is always going to be the problem, the reference point. Like you said, Father, all the relationships that we have, when they're not ordered under Scripture, become self-serving. And once they're self-serving, they just become brittle because two self-serving people eventually are going to be stomping on each other's toes, unless they're lucky and they just happen to not. But when you don't have that ordering principle, there's less to it. And so this is what John the Baptist is pushing here, after he preached all these things to the people. That's where he left off. So we have this John the Baptist, who begins in the temple, works in the desert, and then somehow tangles with the rulers in Jerusalem as well. You can see the center of gravity here in Jerusalem. His parents, his family pulled him into the temple and he escaped their gravitational pull, but now he's got Herod and palace that is pulling him in. There's another point here that we've not made in the past, Rich, before we hear these two verses that I'd like to bring forward. And that is this title from the Roman Empire that is co-opted by Scripture. And that's an important point. It is co-opted by Scripture so that the scriptural author can make his point. Tetra Archis. A tetrarch is someone who in the Eastern Empire, 
was put in charge of a fourth of a region in order to govern a territory divided into four parts. That is an historical fact, but within scripture, it becomes part of an historical fiction. Meaning, if you think of anything divided into four parts, you should immediately think of the four corners of the earth and the four gospels being preached to the four corners of the earth. Remember, this is part of a broader story. It is part of a canonical story. So even though we are only hearing the third gospel, it is already part of a canon and an expectation that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth as we hear more than once in the story. So in this sense, if Herod, in the position that you describe him as someone trying to walk the line, the lukewarm of Revelation whom God will spit out in the end, who's not taking a stand, who wants it both ways, who wants to sit on the throne of David, keep his family loyalty, and pretend that he's also loyal to Scripture, you can't do that. It doesn't work. You have to choose. You have to submit to Scripture as your only loyalty, and whatever happens, happens. And you have to accept the chips as they fall. But he is trying to play this game, and he's sitting in this position as one who presides over these four corners. As such, he's a kind of antichrist. I mean, anyone who sits in a seat of authority, who doesn't allow themselves to be emasculated by Scripture, as Zacharias was at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, thus emerging as a priest of the Most High God, not in function of the temple, but in function of the words of God's champion, the angel Gabriel. Anyone who doesn't allow themselves to be emasculated and still sits on the seat of power is an antichrist. So this title is actually critical because if Herod were to submit and to accept the authority of Scripture, then his role as Tetrarch would be set aside and usurped in the way that God usurps patricians and shepherds and patriarchs as his right hand for the imposition of his instruction. So this is a moment of truth. It's a keros, an opportunity presented and controlled by God himself, which Herod will not avail himself of, as we'll hear in just a moment. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So the opportunity, the keros, is the admonition, the cruel, the painful, the difficult preaching of John the Baptist, the insulting, unbearable words of the prophet. You brood of vipers. We just heard what John said. He was condescending, and lots of people heard it, but it's Herod, under the influence of his family, 
who just could not bear to hear it. We have a lot less information about Herod in this pericope. We have a long story in Matthew, for example, that you get to see some of the complexity of Herod's situation, where on the one hand, he fears John the Baptist. He also fears the multitude who think that John is a prophet. So he's worried about doing anything with John. So he just puts him in prison and just lets him sit there. Okay, that's the first thing. The other difference we have is it's being reproved by him for Herodias his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done. So we have a couple things. Number one, we don't have the whole story of the dancing and the party and the promise and the beheading. We don't have all that here in Luke chapter 3 in these verses. Luke truncates that piece. Now, we can't not know it because we've read it in the other books, but it's definitely truncated here. The other thing is that it's also equated with all the evils which Herod had done. So there's a multitude of things, and those other things aren't actually enumerated in other places. Now, one can imagine being a petty prince of the Roman Empire, there's plenty of evil things that you have to do just as part of your job description, right? There's plenty of problems with being a Roman ruler. So Herod's response then to this teaching, amazingly, the teaching is happening out in the wilderness, and Herod somehow is hearing about this. Luke doesn't fill that in, but the word is getting out. Interestingly, the word is coming from the desert into Jerusalem, just as John had to leave Jerusalem in order to preach the word. Once the word gets back to Jerusalem, John is criticizing Herod, and it's because of this he had to shut John up in prison. So we begin the story of John's life with his father going into the Holy of Holies for the Day of Atonement. John the Baptist being born and then leaving so that he could preach, and now he's being not just forcibly brought back to Jerusalem, but imprisoned in Jerusalem. He cannot escape because of the powers that be. The powers that be cannot allow this word to keep going. If the Tetrarch decided to follow the will of God and follow the teaching, he would be in trouble with his Roman rulers. He does the thing about Matthew. You only get to serve one master. Herod gets a choice, either the Romans or the Lord. Which Lord is the one that he's going to follow? In this case, he had to follow his human Lord. So he had to lock up the teaching of his heavenly father. He had to shut down this teaching because this teaching ultimately becomes anathema when it comes to the Roman rule. And it's within his own family. This is his sister-in-law. Isn't this amazing at this level? The dispute between a guy and his sister-in-law ends up with some other guy minding his business out in the wilderness in prison. That's what happens when these relationships, when these petty concerns, when these earthly concerns, when these questions of power become unmoored from the reference of Scripture. Because John the Baptist is correct from Scripture, if we import what was in Matthew and Mark, you can't marry your sister-in-law. It's out of bounds. You can't do it. But Herodias wants it because that way she can stay close with power. And Herod wants this because then he doesn't have to have an heir that goes outside of the family. And he can stay in power. It's all about the power. Again, earthly power versus scriptural power either your Roman Lord or your heavenly Lord. You cannot figure out a way to do it 
both at the same time. That's why Jesus and Matthew made it so explicit. John is certainly a thorn in the side of Herod. Rich, it's not a surprise, actually, that this little conflict between Herod, his brother, and his sister-in-law came front and center with the prophet. It's not a surprise at all, because family is temple, family is king and court, family is tribe. And Americans think they've solved the problem with individualism, but they've simply expanded and multiplied the problem. That's what I was alluding to at the beginning of the program with meism. At least in the classical world, you just had to deal with Herod and a few patricians. They were difficult. Now we're dealing with the problem at a scale that's mind-boggling and it's destructive. I'm not saying that other human beings solved the problem. I don't think the problem is solvable. I think the human ego is part of the human condition and our only hope is to go back to the well of scripture, to go back to the well of wisdom and constantly be challenged to bow down before the teaching, not before another human being. But unfortunately, another human being is the only way that the teaching can be enforced. You can't bow down to an imaginary friend. That's where relationships become very important in community, where we hold each other accountable. But accountable not to each other personally, accountable to a teaching. That's the key. It has to be that way. Because the teaching has no ego, except what's written. It does have an ego, but it's an immutable ego, which is unto life. It's a self-serving ego that serves the common good. That's all I want to say about the text. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.